There's another train. There always is. I couldn't have asked for a more fitting statement of faith for today's worship, so thank you so much. Give get sestet for this beautiful rendering of a song that is moving my heart so much this morning. Thank you. Today we are celebrating the coming of age, youth, and we honor, we honor you, you big, brave, beautiful people. They have wrestled, undertaken questions of faith and trust, wholeness and brokenness, good and evil, God in the traditional understanding and God, or God as a creative force inside, outside everything, or no God at all. At the core of our faith is a central value that in order for religion to be authentic, to truly ignite our lives, it must be free and responsible. It must be an undertaking. We are a non-creedal faith, and that means we don't ask people to ascribe to a certain set of beliefs in order to be a part of this religious community. That goes for everyone, no matter if you're 13, 14, or 62. Instead, our religious tradition invites us all into a vitality of faith engagement, to ask questions of ourselves and our community, and then align our lives with the answers that emerge. You don't get to believe anything you want. You actually can't do that and hold true to the very meaning of religion. That is a return to spiritual health and wholeness but you do get to have a free and responsible search. A better way of understanding our faith tradition is to say that we believe that a free faith is always emerging. Faith emerges from within, from among, and beyond. Faith emerges from the sacred texts of our own lives. Faith emerges from the sacred texts that have been handed down to us through the centuries or in a a poem we found yesterday. Faith emerges from this covenantal community of believers who say we don't have to think alike in order to love alike. That we are inextricable inextricably bound together in this incredible holy now. And we walk our talk as best we can in compassionate care. As theologian Rebecca Parker writes, we engage in compassionate care for the present realities of suffering injury, and injustice that call for our active response. As people of faith, we say in one way or another, it matters what you believe, it matters how you get there, and it really does. So a few months ago, my spouse and I, we we happened upon this concert in a small river town. 
featuring Billy McLaughlin. And he is an amazing guitarist who has lived a life of music making. And he doesn't play the guitar in the usual way, strumming or picking with the right hand and formulating chords or melody with his left. Billy taps and plucks the strings on the fingerboard like this. And both of his hands dance over the fretboard, creating this incredible landscape of sound and spirit. It's amazing to watch and even more amazing to listen to. So it was this small little concert space. Some Easter lilies were kind of stacked around the microphone to make the stage look good, and there were floor lamps around the stage for lighting. And I just felt so lucky to get a chance to hear this phenomenal guitarist up close. So the house lights dimmed and the host sauntered across the stage and he said something like, it's so great to have Billy on the stage tonight. He's an artist who's overcome great adversity and he's come back even better. So running in the same circle of musicians, I had heard about Billy's struggles and this rare disease that he was trying to navigate called focal dystonia. Kind of sounds like a country, but focal dystonia that had really devastated his playing and his, his livelihood. So dystonia is this neurological disorder where the brain stops communicating with a particular part of the body. And Billy's brain had stopped communicating with these three fingers. These three fingers. These essential reasons that he was able to play the guitar in such a unique way. It was the very heart and soul of his music making. And I knew that he had worked for years training himself to essentially play the guitar backwards. To play the guitar all over again with the other hand as the dominant mover and shaker. And it had been a really long haul. So when the announcer said, let's give Billy a warm welcome, I cheered as loud as everyone else. We all cheered. We all cheered because we all wanted to believe that whatever life dishes out, you can always come back bigger and better, right? So when Billy started with his signature sound, I was just swept away with admiration and awe. The sounds that came out of that marriage of fingers and strings and heart and wood were incredible. And the expression of music in his body is riveting to watch as well. He stretches his head up to the sky and his neck is long and he looks like a great blue heron just standing, <laughs> receiving the sun. So I was listening, it was beautiful, and then it happened. This fumble, an audible misstep, and then two or three more, and then another. And at one point, he just cried out loud, Oh, come on! He finished the song, and we all applauded, 
but there was a discomfort in the room. Maybe he hadn't come back bigger and better after all. Maybe you can't muscle your way through every hardship. Maybe things are not all in our control or bound by our wishes or our choices. And then something grace-filled happened. Billy started telling us about his story. He, he stepped into that very vulnerable moment of the holy now. He preached some good news, and man, I needed to hear what he was preaching. He started talking about gratitude for life, living in vulnerability, and compassionate care for the present realities of suffering and injury. He began by saying that when he was diagnosed with dystonia, it was this roller coaster of tests, therapy, spiritual devastation. But in the end, he just could not let go of this central part of who he was. So he decided to retrain himself to play the guitar. And see what he could make of it. Billy introduced another song as the hardest song he plays. He performed it. It was intricate. It was beautiful. It had a lot of mistakes. And afterward, he told us this was the song he had decided to start with as he began the long slog of retraining his body to play the guitar. And then he gave a little smirk, and we all just broke out laughing. I mean, I don't know if this is a white thing or a me thing or just a human thing. All I know is that there's something about me anyway that thinks that I can produce a level 10 without going through steps 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. (laughs) And when I can't produce level 10 to perfection, I say, I give up. Can't be done. And then I do some nasty self-talk, really get that thing going. And then I usually cry. And those tears usually bring me to prayer or reading some sacred text or sitting in silence. And then usually some compassion starts to creep in. And I start again in love at level one. Billy's version of this scenario went about the same way. He worked and worked and worked on this incredibly difficult song for months. And when he couldn't make it happen, he threw his axe in the closet and said, I quit. It can't be done. And he took himself to his favorite Thai restaurant to console himself. And so he finishes off his meal, and he gets a check and his fortune cookie, and it reads, sometimes failure is quitting too soon. Mm. (laughs) And he went back home, and he took the guitar out of the closet, and we are all the luckier for it. Billy said he'd come to some peace, 
some realization that he would have to live with his fingering missteps and mistakes in order to continue the life he was meant to live, a life of music. He didn't say it this way, but as I listened, I realized he's talking about opening himself to a new emerging set of beliefs, a new faith statement, one that is more joy-focused, more compassion-focused than performance or perfection-focused. He would live with public vulnerability as long as he could play the guitar. There's another train. There always is. Maybe the next one is yours. Get up and climb aboard another train. I think we're fed this lie. A lie that is propagated over and over again in many forms by greed, by a consumer-consuming framework, by our racialized society, by white supremacy, by plain old sinfulness. And the lie is, my life will be determined solely by the choices I make. If I make the right choices, if I do the right things, if I buy the right things, if I exercise the right way, if I eat the right foods then I will have a good and meaningful life. You choose your life. But our individual choices are only part of the equation. I'm sure Billy would attest to that, and I think many of you in this room would do the same. Sometimes life chooses you. And when it does, when life chooses you, It really matters what you believe. It really matters how you get there. It really does. The Tao Te Ching says, the name that can be named is not the eternal name. When Moses asks God, what shall I call you? God says, I am who I am. Tell the people of Israel, I am sent. I am sent me to you. So how do I name the divine, this holy that I feel? And I'm going to venture into this folly today. I believe in something I've begun to call the God flow. God is not so much a noun as a verb, a self-expending, other-affirming, community-forming power in and around and beyond us all. And it's always inviting me into my best self. It's always inviting us into our best self, our best expression as variety-filled communities, a power that's always bending the arc of history toward justice and right relationship and joy. And my peace in this dance is to awaken into the reality of the God flow, to play in rhythm with that God music as best I can. It takes engaging in compassionate care for the present realities of my own suffering and injury and for the present realities of suffering, injury, and societal injustice that calls all of us for our active response. 
I like to say I live as best I can by this verse in Micah, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with my God, the God flow. At this point in time, I'm focusing a lot on humility. I've come across a Jewish school of thought called Musar that identifies humility as the prime soul trait. And in this understanding, the practice of humility helps us to occupy our rightful space in the world. Not too much and not too little. I think this is especially important in racial justice work. As Rabbi Dov Gartenberg writes in his sermon on humility, humility is best understood as a sense of our place in the world. This teaching can be rightly understood as a critique of our celebrity-worshipping culture. Humility is to find a middle path between our hunger to occupy lots of space and our tendency, when beaten down by life, to occupy too little. Humility is a spiritual practice that helps us occupy our proper space, a middle path between our hunger to occupy lots of space and our tendency, when beaten down by life, to occupy too little. It is a practice of humility that calls me to speak up in all white spaces and compassionately point out privileged assumptions being made, and not to remain silent. It is a practice of humility that calls me to receive kindness when I'm hurting. It is a practice of humility that allows me to circle back to someone and say, I made a mistake, and I'd like to ask for your forgiveness. It is humility that helps me relax when life decides to choose me. It is humility that assures that there is another train. There always is. May we all do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly when life chooses us. Amen.